Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. I'm going to read briefly from Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. And uh, no, do not feel frightened. I'm not announcing an upcoming deacon election. I know we generally reserve this passage for that purpose, but I find that Acts chapter 6 is an apt illustration this morning for what we will be reading in Proverbs chapter 3. So in order to provide a little bit of context for what we'll be hearing in Proverbs chapter 3, let's begin with Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. You're now the word of the Lord. Now in those days, when the number of the disciples were multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit, Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer into the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. And Stephen full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Amen. We normally approach this text in a topical manner, looking at this development of the office of deacon that we imagine to be here. But we also must recognize that it's Luke's purpose in writing this to introduce us to one deacon in particular. I mean, really two, Stephen and Philip. And as he introduces us to Stephen, particularly in Acts chapter 6, he references Stephen three times. And each time he describes Stephen as being a man who is full. Now he doesn't mean well fed. He doesn't mean an obese American. He means full internally. Full of the spirit and of wisdom in verse 3. He is full of faith and of the spirit in verse 5. He is full of faith and of power in verse 8. Stephen is twice said to be full of the Spirit. And as a result of this, he is full of faith. He is full of wisdom. He is full of power. And these three evidences of the indwelling Holy Spirit make Stephen a formidable force. Such that all who hear him long to dispute with him. And yet are unable to do so. He is not only intellectually sharp, he is emotionally vigorous. He is a force to be reckoned with because God is within him. 
giving him faith, power, and wisdom. With this view of Stephen in mind, turn back with me to Proverbs chapter 3. Our sermon this morning comes from Proverbs chapter 3. I'll be reading verses 1 through 12. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. We're going through the book of Proverbs and we're looking presently at this introduction to wisdom that Solomon gives to his son in in chapters 1 through 9. We've seen how he introduces us to the concept of what is wisdom, how do you get it, where does it come from. He's also introduced his son to the way in which we get it, by seeking it diligently. Now in chapter 3, Solomon will begin to introduce his son to the effect or value of wisdom in his son's life. So this morning, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Hear again the word of the Lord. My son, do not forget my law, but let your heart keep my commands. For length of days and long life and peace they will add to you. Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart, and so find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. So your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will overflow with new wine. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father the son in whom he delights. Amen and amen. In the summer of 2005, I was engaged to be married and preparing to be married, so I hopped a plane to Scotland and spent my fiancé, left my fiancé to prepare the wedding. It was a very natural response, and if you think that's true, speak to me after the worship service. I spent 30 days running around the nation of Scotland with a short-term mission team sharing the gospel. We would knock on doors and we would share the gospel. We would play soccer, that is football, with the kids in the local field, and we would share the gospel. But one of the most intriguing and memorable experiences is when the local public school opened up their religious education classes to us and would allow us to come in and present to the children a skit, a bit of song and dance, and and at the end, share with them the gospel. Of course, like most short-term mission teams, we completely lacked originality and went with the Noah's Ark skit. I guess you got stuck doing Noah. (laughs) But I remember very well walking into one of the elementary schools. And the religious education class had already begun and there were a hundred plus students there in the gymnasium sitting on the floor singing as only elementary aged kids can... God's love is the best love the world has ever, ever known. And there were two things that immediately arrested me. 
First, it was the tune of the Flintstones and the Jetsons. And I was sitting there going, this is so crazy. I'm hearing that tune, but it's the wrong words, and there's an Irish, in a Scottish accent to boot. The second thing I realized was, in my very proud, reformed heart, look at this silly little milk that they're feeding to these children. Wait till our mission team gets in there and we give them the truth. Years later, much older, and just a tad humbler, I look back on that memory and I think, what a glorious song. The tune still stinks, but to sing and to have embedded in our hearts and our minds God's love is the best love the world has ever known. Is it not true? Is this not the heart of the gospel? Is this not why we're here to worship, sitting in the cold and sitting in the face mask? Is this not why we're here? Because God's love is worth living for and worth dying for. The truth that Solomon gives to his son and through him to us in Proverbs chapter 3 this morning is that God's love is the best thing in life. That God himself is the best thing in life. And so my friends live dependent upon and devoted to God. Since God is the best thing in life, this morning I beg you, live devoted to and dependent upon God. Now think with me about this for a little while. Notice first in our text that Solomon addresses his son in verses 1 and 2 and poetically reminds him of the fifth commandment. My son, do not forget my law, but let your heart keep my commandments. He says to his son in verse 1, have my law on your mind and have my commands in your heart. Be the kind of son who listens to his father and follows what he says. Be thinking about my words, be delighting in my words, and most of all, be doing my words. He promises in verse 2 that his fatherly instruction will have good effect in his life. It will lengthen his days, it will lengthen his life, and it will add peace to him. In the Star Trek language, if you want to live long and prosper, you have to obey your parents. This is what the fifth commandment tells us. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. This is the promise. If you don't want to die prematurely, do what your parents tell you. If you don't want to endure on earth in a miserable, struggling existence, do what your parents tell you. Parental authority is in the mind of both Solomon and Moses this essential energy to a long and happy life. Now we see this immediately true in our own experience. When the ball goes bouncing out of the driveway into the street, the parent issues a command. Stop. This law, if heard and heeded by the child, will save the child's life. As the child goes running toward the road and into the oncoming path of a car. The parent's word is the difference between life and death. In like manner, we see it in a systemic way. 
Parents, more often than that, say to their children, eat your vegetables, go to bed on time. And these are the things that make for the habits of a long and happy life. These little commands of parents that seem to children so tedious, well, maybe that's just me when I was a child, are the commands that make for a long and happy life. But ultimately, I think what Solomon has in mind in these verses is that parents stand as the first set of training wheels to teach children to not follow their hearts or their selves, but someone else. Parents are that first interrupter to the idolatry of the human soul. The first to stand and say to children that most sacred of human words, no. The word that saves the lives of foolish children. The word that lengthens the life of suicidal humans. The word that brings peace and well-being to the human existence. That word by which parents tell children, don't do what you want. Because you don't know best. This is the forerunner to God himself. You see, parents are the first to stand in the shadow of God and to say to a little tiny human being, you can't do it your way. You have to do it someone else's way. God's way. In this way, parents, the most life-saving feature of your relationship to your children is not getting them to obey your commands. It's getting them to obey God's. Putting the parent at the center of a child's existence is substituting their natural selfish idolatry for our parental idolatry. It cannot be the goal. Solomon instead offers the right view of both parenthood and childhood. The ambition is to take 18 or 20 years, depending on the child, and to impress upon him or her the essential nature of having God at the center of their being. It is God who makes life good. It is God who makes you human. It is God that is most essential. You must find him. You must have him. And he must be at the center of who you are and all that you do. This is why God gave us parents. To break down that initial idolatry and to set God in the center. Solomon then turns to his child and gives him four illustrations of how this is the case. That if we can implant God, if we can enthrone God in the center of these four areas of our life we will surely see those areas of our life flourish and thrive and prosper. First area in verses 3 and 4, in the center of our relationships. If we put God in the center of our relationships, they will flourish and blossom in a way that the self can never bring about. Making my friendships about my self-satisfaction, stop me if you've heard this before, as one looks upon one's marriage and says, well, I just don't feel fulfilled anymore. I'm sorry, my friend, that was not the mission of your marriage at any time. 
My friendships just aren't satisfying anymore. I'm sorry, that wasn't their point. It's not why they existed. The self can never be satisfied. It is a God without death, demanding all relationships be consumed by it. But Solomon says there's a better way, another way. Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. If you become a human being in which love and truth are wedded together like ornaments around you, dangling about the core of your being, if you bind them around your neck so that all the world looks upon you and sees love and truth is at the center of who you are, if you write them deep within your heart so that you are a truth-speaking, love-giving human, then, verse 4, you will find favor and esteem with God and man. Healthy, thriving relationships depend on us becoming self-denying, self-sacrificing lovers of others. The degree to which we enthrone love upon our hearts and in before our eyes is the degree to which we will become truly valuable. These relationships make for a peaceful life. These relationships make for long lives. Harvard recently concluded a multi-generational study of over 800 people. And at the end of all the study, and after decades of researchers looking into the lives of these people, they came to a stunning conclusion. I use that in very Harvard-esque quotes. The most satisfying thing in life are relationships. And all the lonely, wealthy, powerful people would trade every penny for a friend. And all the beloved, friend-rooted people never missed a penny in their life. This is, is the beating heart of a long and peaceful existence. Healthy relationships in which we love one another. In which we serve one another and sacrifice for one another. Solomon says, my son, if you will enthrone love in your heart, you will find favor with God and man. If you will be a loving person, then you will find your relationships thrive. It's the secret to good relationships. Let me give you a good example of this. Jesus. Who is the only one in scripture to have been said, other than this verse, to have found favor and high esteem with God and man. Luke chapter 2. Jesus, in whose heart was love and truth in full measure and without pollution or corruption. Being entirely truthful, being entirely loving, he was the world's best friend. And he was the world's greatest lover. And he found favor in the sight of God and man. Right up to the point where they killed him. Hold that thought. We'll come back to that. My friends, Solomon says to his son, generally speaking, the secret to a good relationship is being a good friend, being a loving and attentive person. But there is a limit. Because even the most loving man the world has ever known, the most truthful man the world has ever known, was hated, crucified. Jesus Christ stands as both the pinnacle of this truth and an exception to it. But Solomon then points his son to a second 
area of life, which illustrates this truth. Verses 5 and 6, he says that if you will enthrone God in your wisdom, in your knowledge, you will be wise and all-knowing. Verses 5 and 6, not actually all-knowing. You know, God alone is all-knowing. Verses 5 and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He shall direct your paths. Familiar verses to those who have grown up in the church, been around some Sabbath schools, been around some youth camps. It is interesting to note that in the Hebrew, trust in the Lord with all your heart actually means the thinking organ. Because in Hebrew, it's the stomach that does the feelings and it does the heart. It's the heart that does the thinking. Hence, the parallel line. Lean not on your own understanding. Solomon says that if you put God in the center of your relationships, then your relationships thrive in like manner. If you put God in the center of your thinking, then your thinking comes alive. Your thinking prospers and is well promoted. If you lean on your own understanding, you will go astray. But... If you trust in the Lord's understanding, if you receive from Him instruction, if you read His Word and prosper from it, and acknowledge Him as wise and good and right and true, He shall direct your paths. His words will give you the right road on which to walk. His words will set your feet in good places. My friends, we experience this far too often, do we not? That I am resolved to have it my way. And boy, do I regret it when I get it. How many times have we rebelliously resisted our parents' instruction only to find out what we thought we wanted we really didn't want? Solomon says this is true of all sinners and all rebels. That we must trust in the Lord with all our heart. That is, commit our thinking to Him and His Word. That His law should direct our thinking. And our decisions should flow from His wisdom and not our own. If in all the ways that we go through life, we acknowledge Him, that is, make Him preeminent, make Him the goal, the priority, then He in turn directs our paths. When we, my friends, come to a fork in the road and find ourselves struggling with a difficult decision, how do we answer it? What is the fountain of wisdom? It is His Word, and it is His Word received in prayer. We acknowledge Him as wise. We acknowledge Him as the fountain of wisdom, and let Him set before us the path that we should walk. If God will be the center of our relationships, we will become the loving creatures our relationships need us to be. In like manner, if we will put God in the center of our minds and our thinkings, we will find our decisions outflow from that wisdom. We see this again preeminently in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who in the wilderness is bereft of every earthly comfort. For 40 days and 40 nights, he is sleeping on rocks in the dirt. Do you know what temperature the the desert averages in, in nighttime? It's not warm. He spends every night freezing, every day overheating, going without food and without drink. He is at the physical limit of what a human being can bear. 
And when Satan comes to him in his loneliness and in his hunger and his thirst and his isolation and his discomfort and his sleep deprivation, when he is most vulnerable, most frail, and Satan draws out his three temptations and three times he pokes him, what does Jesus bleed? Bible. Deuteronomy specifically. How many of you have Deuteronomy memorized? Yeah, Jesus did. Deuteronomy 8. How many of you have Deuteronomy 8 memorized? Jesus did. There in the wilderness, he found himself trusting not in his own understanding, but in the Lord's word, in his Father's word. Oh, and how did that turn out? He made all the right decisions, didn't he? He made great decisions, didn't he? Oh, he certainly did. And it cost him a cross. Generally speaking, Solomon says to his son, if you put God at the center of your relationships, your relationships thrive. If you put God at the center of your thinking, you will be wise. It is God who makes these things good. And yet, once again, Jesus stands as the paramount example of this and the exception to it. So thirdly, Solomon turns his son's gaze upon a third area in his life in which God must be the center, his health. By this, I think he means his physical health, his emotional health, and his mental health. He says in verse 7, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. In classic Hebrew style, he points to us in a very concrete and comprehensible way. This action of putting God at the center of yourself, at the center of your pursuit of health, will actually give you health. He speaks of flesh and of bone. That is muscle and sinew and bones and marrow. The actual anatomy of our body. We will gain physical health by having God be the center of our existence and the preeminent priority in our life. But of course, David reminds us throughout the Psalms that there is a deep and intimate connection between what is internal and what is external. He says in Psalm 51 that his guilt ate his flesh and his bones. He says likewise that his sorrows in Psalm 102 was wasting away his flesh and his bones. Solomon here speaks to his son of health and strength, but it's not merely physical performance. It is also emotional well-being and mental well-being. And he says all of this, all the health and vitality and vigor of our lives is bound up in not being wise in our own eyes, but departing from evil and fearing the Lord. This mini chiasm in verse 7 puts fear of the Lord in the center of his point. Do not be wise in your eyes. Depart from your own wisdom and depart from evil. Do not do what you would want to do. Divorce yourself from your selfishness and instead live in the fear of the Lord. Reverence God and let God be the center of who you are. It will be refreshing to your body, refreshing to your heart and to your mind. Do you know what God calls the Sabbath day? Repeatedly throughout the law of Moses. It is my gift to you. That day of rest, that day of worship, 
That day of intimacy with God, fellowship with God, 24 hours of uninterrupted prayer, scripture reading, fellowship, partaking of the sacraments, meditating on the glorious God and all that He has done. It is good for the body. It is good for the mind. It is good for the heart. The most healthy thing we can often do is step back and spend time with God. He is the fountain of health and of vigor for us. Solomon says, put him at the center. We see this again with Jesus Christ, do we not? Throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus was repeatedly said that at the most dire and difficult circumstances, he would withdraw to be alone with God. In some of the most desperate hours, when the night was dark, his disciples were fearful. Where was Jesus? Up on the mountain praying with his dad. Up on the mountain speaking to his heavenly father. Drawing fresh reserve. Drawing strength and health to do the work. Because it was proximity to his heavenly father that renewed him and revigorated him. But my friends... What happened to Christ when he drew near to his heavenly father in the Garden of Gethsemane? He wept drops of blood. He sweat drops of blood. And he cried out, not my will, your will. He who was born of a woman yet without sin had learned from the things he had suffered submission to his heavenly father. We must learn to put God in the center of what we are doing. The center of our relationships. The center of our thinking. The center of our health and our pursuit of health. And yet, Jesus again stands as the preeminent example and the exception to this truth. Generally speaking, that if we put God at the center of our pursuit of health, our emotional, our mental And our physical health thrives best in close proximity to God. But Christ still stands as an exception to humble us. We'll come back to that. The fourth and final illustration. In verses 9 and 10, Solomon says, My son, if you will put God at the center of your wealth and your pursuit of wealth, then you will indeed prosper. Verse 9, honor the Lord with your possessions. Worship God is indeed a right translation. Reverence Him, fear Him with your possessions. Understand that everything you have been given is a a gift from God for which you are to be a steward, a caretaker, and a manager. Honor the Lord with your possessions. Do not see your possessions as your Lord, nor see them as your tools and ambitions. Your possessions are not ultimately yours. They are God's entrusted to you for a time. Honor Him with them. Take out of them the first fruits of your increase. Solomon points his son back to the law of Moses. And says, out of all that you get, take the first and the best and give it to the Lord. Give to Him first so that others might prosper. These first fruits would go to the Levites. They would go to the poor, the widow, the orphan, those who are in need. Solomon says to his son, if you live with a generous and open hand, giving of all that you get, first and foremost, verse 10, your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. 
It is the same refrain that we find in Malachi chapter 3, where the prophet says to the people of God, I dare you, let's have a competition. God says to his people, you bring in the tithes and the offerings, and I will keep you from going bankrupt. Let's have a game. I'll give God. I dare you, be more generous than God. Give more love than God can refill in you. Give more listening ear, more friendship, more affection. Spend more time, more energy, more devotion, caring for others, giving to others, clothing and feeding others, housing others, and see if you run out. See if you can outspend God. This is what Solomon says to his son. Of all that you acquire in life through your wise and diligent work, give it away. Give it away. Love others. Live for others and not for self. Solomon thus has laid out these four posts from which he has built a life for his son to live. In all that you do, son, enthrone God over your relationships. Enthrone God over your thinking. Enthrone God over your health and personal well-being. Enthrone God over your wealth prosperity. Enthrone God over the improvements you find in your life. Give them all for the welfare of others. And then, my son, you will have a good life. Make your life about God, and you will have a good life. Was it not so with Jesus Christ, who came into the world not to be served, but to serve? And to give all that he had, his own life, as a ransom for many. That brings us then to the most desperate and dire reconciliation of these challenges. Solomon seems to be saying to his son what we will find on most televisions in America today, the prosperity gospel. He seems to be saying to his son, I have the secret to a life well lived. Put God in the center and everything will be fine. Jesus contradicts that interpretation of Proverbs chapter 3. I imagine most of your lives contradict that interpretation of Proverbs chapter 3. Solomon rightly and truthfully tells his son that most of the time, if you are a loving, self-sacrificial individual, you will not lack for friends. Most of the time, If you just follow what God says in his word, your decisions will be good. Most of the time, if you just make God the priority in your health, you will be healthy. And if you give away your wealth in a God-like fashion, you will be wealthy. Most of the time. But that's not Solomon's point. See, in verses 11 and 12, Solomon ends by saying, Again, my son... He brings in this vocative statement, my son, to bring out a parallel with verse 1. As he in verses 1 and 2 laid out for his son the importance of parental authority and submission to it. So now in verses 11 and 12, Solomon ends by laying out the importance of your heavenly father's authority and your submission to it. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord and do not detest his correction. What happens when you put God in the center of your relationship and your relationship goes south? My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord and do not detest his correction. 
What happens when you make God the center of all your decisions and you use His Word faithfully and obediently and your decisions fail? And they do not prosper. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. Do not detest His correction. What happens when you make your intimate relationship with God the very pillar and post of all your health and well-being? And you find yourself sick. And you find yourself depressed. And you find your thoughts disturbed. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. Nor detest his correction. What happens when you honor the Lord with all your wealth and you give away all that you have and find that you are indeed poor? My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord nor detest his correction. You see, true wisdom, wisdom that we as children need to learn, wisdom which Christ himself needed to learn, as he in Luke chapter 2 submitted himself to his parents and grew in wisdom and favor with God and man through his obedience to his parents, most of all his heavenly Father, we must learn that the Lord loves those whom he corrects, and he delights in those whom he chastens. He delights and he loves. My friends, if we walk away from this passage thinking, at last I've got it, I know the secret to a happy, healthy, wealthy life, then the answer for ourselves is we have not yet escaped the idolatry of self. God has become an instrument to my satisfaction. That is not Solomon's point. God is not your tool to gratify yourself. God is God. To be worshipped. To be enjoyed. To be glorified. And to know that whatever He does with me, I know He loves me. Or in the words of Job, though He slay me, I will trust Him. In the words of 1 Peter, he committed himself to the one who judges justly. Like Job, but even more so like Jesus, we as sons and daughters of the great king must learn that putting God first and foremost in our lives is how we have a good life. Because even if all of our life falls apart, we have God. And that's the part in life that's good. My friends, God makes life good. Indeed, he's the only thing that is good. And all the things he has given us that are good are only good to the degree to which they unite us to him. Draw us into his love and his delight and teach us. He loves us. He delights in us. I was wondering how to let you know about the man we're going to mourn this weekend as the children of Chapelfield Christian School. I was telling Tim before the service, there are so many memories, so many stories of this excellent servant of God who devoted his life to the welfare of the kingdom and the glory of his king. Here's my favorite story. Every morning at Chapelfield, We would stand at attention with our right hands on our hearts and we would pledge allegiance to the American flag. And as soon as we ended, we would add the words, 
And I promise to live my life always in his presence, under his authority, and for his glory. Coram Deo. You see, friends, of all the most wonderful things Bill Spanger Coach ever did in his life, he discovered and taught people to discover that the best thing in life is God. To live in His presence, under His authority, and for His glory. That's the best way to live. It makes everything in life better. And then if everything in life goes wrong, it's still the best way to live. Because you still got Him. And He's the best thing in life. God is the best thing in life. He's the best part of life. God's love is the best love. So my friends, be devoted to him and dependent upon him. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this wisdom of Solomon for his son. By which he tells us how to prosper in this life. And yet, he tells us how to keep prosperity from becoming an idolatry. We thank you, Father, that it is Jesus who enriches our lives. It is Jesus who makes our world so good. And we pray, Father, that it is him that we would love and him whom we would worship. Father, forgive us. That we have sought to do well in anything else but you and your name. And still more, Father, forgive us that we have sought to do well rather than seeking to know you. O God, implant yourself in the center of our hearts, in the center of our minds. That in you we would rejoice, rejoice, and to you we would continually return. Our Father, we thank you for these sweet truths and pray that you would indeed bind them around our necks, write them upon our hearts, and bring them forth into our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.